Jesse Dram, and we are back once again with the I Hate Infinite Jerst Perdcast. Again, this is episode 23. I'm pulling up the pages now. 651 to 682. Our guest is Hannah Smart. She is a DFW superfan. She is a musician. She is a short story writer. She gets she gives all her plugs very early on, so you can watch on there. And uh figure out what she is doing sorry i mailed it in so much on the song this week but there wasn't really a whole lot of inspiration there all i could think of was the Hal and stice game which takes up the bulk of what we did i considered doing a very uh morbid version of how much is that doggy in the window retitled to how much is that doggy being dragged by the volvo but it just didn't work out too well um I asked you guys to write me last week, and you did. And you know what? I really appreciated that. I I think I got back to everybody. I like uh, I, I like hearing from you guys. I like knowing what's going on. I heard from Martin in the Netherlands, and we had a discussion on uh, just how hard it is. Re- I, I believe they said they're reading a uh, an English version of the book, despite English not being their first language, and how a lot of the syntax is... Little, little bit difficult. Uh, there was also Tyler. I shouldn't do this because I know I'm not going to remember everybody's names, but it's been fun talking to people and hearing what you guys are doing. I actually had a, a little bit of a meltdown on Facebook where I just uh, did a post just because I'm having, you know, just comedy sucks right now. There's not a whole lot of things going on. And I just made a post like, I just responded to fan mail for two hours. Uh, can somebody book me on something? But the squeaky in this case, the complaining and whiny wheel gets the grease. And uh, I have a booking coming up in November. I don't know when exactly, but 
There's a reason I don't know things exactly, and I'm glad to share this with you guys. Uh, on Tuesday? Yeah, on Tuesday, October 13th, I asked the lovely Perry Lerner from Footnote Episode 1, This Is Water, if she would one day be my bride, and she foolishly accepted. So I am in, I'm an engaged man as of this point. Yeah. I, uh, I, I thought about it. I did a lot of analysis, and I decided that I liked it, and that I should, in fact, put a ring on it, as the great philosopher Beyonce once said. Yeah, I, I, I proposed to Perry. And you know what? Let, let's get into this. I feel like you guys like hearing me rant a little bit. You might not. You know what? Fuck you. It's my podcast. I'll just I'll rant a little. Um, I really agonized over how to propose to her because there was just a lot of ideas. Uh, the only thing I knew was she said she wanted it to be. She wanted it to be something private, which is a good thing she told me. Just because I. I'm a ham by nature. Like I even asked, like if I if I propose privately, can we do like a fake public one where you say no and everyone looks embarrassed? Like that sounds terrible. Like that sounds hilarious. We we would get to be a fun story in people's lives and live forever and ignore the fact that we're all going to rot back into the sea at some point. But she does not share those same proclivities. I considered doing it on the podcast, which would have been a little bit public, a little bit not, just because I know I record songs for you guys, so I was thinking of just recording a song where I just, you know, hey, 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 I love you, you should come marry me, stupid girl, I'm trying to do hey, hey, we're the monkeys, and if I just did like, yeah, babe, I, I did a song for this week's podcast, why don't you check it out, and then that would be the beginning of the podcast would be me asking her to marry me didn't happen that either what happened was is uh i had ordered it i'd ordered the ring online because we're modern she also she didn't want a diamond my girl's very uh earthy very like wiccan kind of thing but there's a store on etsy which is just called like wedding ring store and they make these bands that look a lot like tree branches. So she said she liked something from there. I ordered it. It took forever because it came from the Ukraine. And what happened was on Tuesday, I heard I'd finally gotten the email. Hey, it's coming today. So I went over to my mom's house where I had it shipped. The, you know, sh- sh- hush, hush on, on the down low. And I went over and I showed it to my mom. And she asked, when are you doing it? And I said, well. Her birthday is tomorrow, but I think I want to hold out to Halloween or the day before. And my mom said, Jesse, you're an idiot. Do it on her birthday. She's turning 30. This will be a good thing. So like, okay, at this point, all right, I'll, I'll propose tomorrow. And even this whole time, it's I said I was going to be spontaneous. The other idea was I was just going to leave it in my pocket for a few weeks and wait for a cute moment. There were actually several times where I told my girlfriend, uh, now my fiance. Is like, yeah, if uh, that was really cute, what you and I did just there, if I had the ring, I probably would have proposed right there. So maybe knock it off with the cute shit so I have to stop saying this. I said it at least three times. But after leaving my mother's house, I stopped at my friend Josh's for a little bit to think and just chit-chat, show him the ring and all that. And it was on the way home. I just started thinking about it, and I'm looking at the box that the ring is in on the passenger side, and I'm just thinking... 
it doesn't belong in that box. It doesn't look right in that, that, like, there was something obscene about it that, like, I had this thing that I wanted to give to the woman I wanted to be my wife and you know, love of my life for the rest of forever. And I, it, it just, it felt dirty to have it in a box, to hi- to even hide it from her. So I got, I, I resigned myself right there. Like, I'm just going to propose as soon as I get home. So I came home came up to our third floor walk off my my lovely bride to be was laying on the couch reading uh <laughs> oh this this is not, my my girlfriend reads a lot of smart stuff she is very very intelligent more intelligent than me that's a thing you have to say take note young young men with girlfriends Ugh, that feels fucking stupid anyway uh she she's re- rereading the hunger games right now <laughs> She's been reading some hard shit. She wanted a page turner. I don't blame her. So she's laying there, and before she'll engage with me, literally and figuratively here, uh, she's like, "Babe, just just let me. Fi- I'm ready to like finish up a big chapter. Just let me get a few pages." So I just kind of like pace around the house and make myself look busy and not weird while I'm waiting to propose to this stupid person that's reading about Katniss, and. Uh, she finishes it, and we chit-chat a little bit, and she was wearing my favorite dress of hers, and I just randomly, like, come here, stand, stand up, let me take a look at you in that dress, and I dropped to one knee, and I pretty much said that, like, yeah, the the it, it would have felt dirty and obscene to carry this around and keep it from you. I also said that uh, one of the big phrases she and I have always had is, uh, this forever. Which was like either something really cute happened or really like stupid, but stupid in a way that was very much she and I. And it would looking at them like, you know, this, th- this forever. This is what you want. This is what you're getting. This forever. Um, and I thought about that and I said this to her while I proposed to her that we've always said this forever. And it felt right to me to do it, to propose in our little apartment surrounded by our little family of our cat Lilith and our two bunnies Iggy and Rory Iggy is the one that's on uh, the the picture for this podcast he's the best that this is the this we have right now and I want you to look around at the this and I want you to say you will do this forever for me and (laughs) she stops she says just to be clear you're asking me to marry you right because you didn't specifically say that and I might have called her, I think I called her stupid and pushed her down the steps. But the important thing is, she said yes, guys. So if you want to hear a young couple in love, uh, you can go back to footnote episode one. I'm going to be doing another footnote episode soon. I'm still not sure what we're going to read, but I'm going to have my buddy Rusty on. Rusty Wright from, uh, God, I don't even remember the name of his podcast. Now They changed the name. That's not my fault. But he's a good friend of mine. But yeah, I am engaged. I am in love. And this is episode 23 of the I Hate Infinite Chess podcast. And I hope you guys keep listening with guest Hannah Smart. All right, here we are. Episode 23 of the I Hate infinite just podcast we are on pages 651 to 682 coming into the final stretches here 
my guest this week, uh, recommended by R.E. Parrish, who we've had on several times now, Hannah Smart. How are you doing today, Hannah? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing very good. You, you and I just talked that uh, I, <laughs> we're recording late today because I went to a drive-in movie screening of Nightmare Before Christmas and had a blast. So, <laughs> yeah, here we are now. Um, where can we find you on the internet? You have any projects you want to promote? Anything, even something you're not promoting on, you're even working on. Anything you want people to see, go tell them. Um, yeah, so I'm like um, a short fiction writer, and I've been published in uh, my most. I was most recently published in like the um, the summer edition of the Blue River Review, and I've also been published in like um, New Reader magazine and like PIF. Um, if you're into infinite jest, uh, yeah, because I kind of do like more sort of postmodern, like metafictional stuff. So, um, uh, you can you can definitely check those out. Um, is is, also, is is Hannah Smart your pen name as well? Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So we'll be able to find you on there. I'm also on Spotify. I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to uh, finish off a music project I've been working on. Um, that's like a rock opera, but, um, I, I still, my, the album I released in college is still up there, um, as well. Um, it's a little cringe now, but, um, (laughs) okay. So this is, this is somewhere you're not going to believe that we intersect a little bit. Um, so I do a lot of songs on the podcast. I actually, I didn't really have anything motivating me this week. So this week I just, uh, did a version of a parody of eye of the tiger only it's about, Hal and Stice's <laughs> tennis match. Just because yeah, you, yeah. you can't always be uh, inspired. But back when I did bands and stuff, uh, when I was in my early 20s, I wrote a concept album, which it's yeah. like a, a, a rock opera. It's just not meant to be acted Concept out. album is like the broader, like all rock operas are concept albums, but not all concept albums are rock operas. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, I, because all my favorite albums are concept albums. Anybody listening, go listen to Dream Theater, uh, Scenes from a Memory. That album is the greatest story thing ever. Anyway, but I wrote a concept album based on, uh, I, was, I was 14 when 9-11 happened. And then randomly one day I had the thought, like, if I was 18 when that happened, I probably would have joined the military and it really would not have been a good fit for me. So I wrote this entire rock opera called uh, Patriot about a kid who joins up and just goes out there and it's uh i i stand by three-fifths of it <laughs> that's what's pretty yeah. dumb what's what's your rock opera basic plot um it's about uh cold war germany um it's I'm about two <laughs> yeah two uh people who who fall in love and are separated by uh the the berlin wall going up and how their lives sort of diverge over a period of like 30 years and then um it finally comes down and they reconnect and they don't care about each other anymore <laughs> <laughs> okay that sounds like a great premise you're still you're on spotify as hannah smart still yeah yeah the, the opera is not out yet i'm still waiting for the first track to get mixed i actually uh recorded it like my last year of college mm-hmm. um and uh, but but just then the pandemic happened and I was trying to find like a, a concert band to play the overture and all that. Um, but yeah. Okay. Wow. Uh, That's really soon. interesting. I want to, I want to go check that out. I, I've written a song. Um, I, I wrote, wrote a song recently um, and released about um, a 
one of David Foster Wallace's short stories called Good Old Neon. I'm not sure if you've read it. Isn't that the, uh, the, the porn awards? No, no, no. No? Um, Wait, that's oh. Big Red Dog. Okay. Uh, now, somebody, uh, uh, Steve Clark, who's been on a few times, told me about Good Old Neon. I can't remember what it's about, though. Yeah, it, it's essentially about this guy who, like, decides that he is um, too, like, uh, fraudulent uh and like he's just he's tricking everybody into thinking he's someone he's not and so he's just gonna kill himself and it's um very very depressing but um but it's david foster wallace depressing no yeah yeah (laughs) it's definitely my short favorite short story of his and i just like some of the lines were so beautiful that i sort of like lifted them and incorporated them into lyrics the song is called uh cry all you want which is a line from the the story too if you want to if you want to check it out but if you're ever like this this lyric sounds really good it's probably from david foster wallace not me but <laughs> okay good deal well, all right so what is uh, what is your obviously your short story writer so what was your overall literary background and how did you eventually find david foster wallace and infinite jest right so um i've always uh been like uh sort of like into books and stuff I've always been a writer um I I didn't really get in he was definitely my introduction to like more postmodern or like metamodern lit um I when I was in high school I was really obsessed with like um The Catcher in the Rye um and I still it's probably still my second favorite book it's probably been edged out by Infinite Jest at this point but um but you know uh I just sort of uh Salinger from him I sort of just got this idea feeling that he like really like was sort of connecting specifically to me as a reader and mm-hmm. and one of my one of my friends who was also into Salinger said like oh you should read Infinite Jest you might really like it and and so I I I'd heard of it before and so I I got it out and I'm like man this thing is like like a thousand pages like what have I gotten myself into mm-hmm. and um I was just like uh completely blown away I I read um everything that David Foster Wallace had ever written within like six months of finishing infinite jest for the first time wow and then i read all of it another time um um and i wish i could erase my memory and read it again but (laughs) so how did it how did it hit you the first time then what was what what were what were you feeling as you were taking that in so many things um i i think that uh well first of all i was really captivated by like his language and how he sort of um describes like these like mental labyrinths that people can find themselves in um i i think the second uh the second section right after um hal's interview um is about like uh is about air daddy who's like one Mm -hmm. of the the lighter and house residents and he's um like trying to uh get off of marijuana and he just keeps like um you know uh making all these excuses for himself and it's just like it's it's I'd never before read a book that was just like such an intricate like description of someone's thought process. And then, um, and then I thought, so that was sort of my first like, like thing that really like drew me in. And then um, on page 40 something um, when Hal and Mario are talking um, and Hal says, uh, and, and Mario, uh, they're talking about God and, and um, Hal says something about how, um, god like has um a sort of like laid back management style he's not crazy mm. about or something and uh-huh. and i don't know what it was about about that line i just sort of i felt like 
like I, it, it just stood out to me. Like it's just one of those lines that for some reason, um, when I kept reading the book that I just, I remembered, like, um, I felt like it was just a really, really witty um, line. And I think all of his like dialogue is really witty. And I, and just some of the, man, I could go on for hours, but <laughs> some, some of the <laughs> that, ways. That, that, that's that, okay. This is, this is the yeah. place to do that. <laughs> yeah. So, some of the ways that he just like, um, like does what, does stuff this is very vague but like um like with dialogue for example how he he'll use the dot 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 to signal like a pause and and it allows him to write like chapters and completely dialogue there are a lot of those in in broom of the system as well mm -hmm. um, which is like his his first book that he wrote in college um but uh yeah it's it's like um it's, it's stuff that you just wouldn't wouldn't think of um like the footnotes, like how, how it just sort of like disjoints the whole thing. Um, I know that when he was, um, when he was corresponding with his sister um, during the, the, the sort of draft stages of Infinite Jest and he was asking her for um, advice and she was like, she was like, you know, like it's really good, but I, if I were you, I would just um, like cool it with the end notes. Like mm -hmm. there's not so many end notes. And, um, and he was like, apparently did not take that advice, but well, clearly, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know, maybe, maybe there were many more that ended up on the editing floor. Oh yeah. I mean, well, yeah, I, know, I know there were, there were a lot of pages that, uh, like a, an extra 500 or so pages, I think that were supposed to be in there that got taken there out were, of his draft. There were some that were cut. He wrote, um, his, uh, he wrote Michael Peach, who was like the, the editor. He, uh, I, the, in one of his letters or, or emails to him, he was like, um, he was like, all right, I'll, I'll take out footnote 37 and I'll delete it from my hard drive so that I don't put it back in again. Or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> so l let me ask, this is, um, so part of this podcast is, uh, it is a little bit catered to some of the negative things people have to say about the book. Uh, right. I, I personally got into this because I tried reading it years and years ago. And I was like 400 pages in and just not enjoying myself. And I just gave up on it. But I met enough people that liked it. And I can be a little bit of a confrontational guy. So it was never like, oh, really? I love that book. And then I would make my friends defend themselves and the book. <laughs> and they all said, if you read the whole thing, you'd understand. So finally, when the whole world shut down, there was a certain 1,100-page blue and green book on my shelf calling out to me saying, maybe now it's time. So, so I gave it a shot. The, the footnotes are one thing where it's like, I, I do like that he puts like long, uh, well, we're going to get it in this episode with uh, Marlon Bain. That takes place yep. entirely in the footnotes. But some of it's like, you know, do I really need to know like the molecular breakdown of like street meth? I, I don't know. I, I, I honestly think some of that stuff's just showing off. Um, like, I, oh, I there's think, a lot of showing off in the book. I think we, like, I think even its greatest fans can admit there's a lot of showing oh yeah, off in the book. Absolutely, and he he had such like an insane vocabulary. He used to keep this this list of words um, that he would just like weird words he'd found in the dictionary, and he's like, I'm gonna find a way to put it in my book somehow. <laughs> um, and so there's definitely some of that um, in the footnotes. Um, the part about calculus, like. That's with with uh, Pemulus and the eschaton 
Oh, uh, God, gang, yeah. that, that's just him flexing that he knows calculus. Like, like it's it's very much and and like you know I so I took calculus classes in high school and college, so I kind of it made me feel smarter that I could sort of understand it. <laughs> so I guess I guess it's good in that sense too. But um, it's yeah, I, I, like, I, I I do I do understand its appeal. It's just I just know for me personally, it's like. I'm just not charmed by this. And that, that's kind of the thing is when, right, right. when somebody's flexing their intelligence, you're kind of forcing the reader into an either or categorization, I, I think. I don't think there's a lot of people like flexing his intelligence. I don't have an opinion about that. So. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it's definitely like the type of people who, who do like flex their intelligence in everyday life are more more drawn to that type of work i'd say well <laughs> or, l- l- let me ask you what you think of this though because one of the popular uh criticisms of the book is that it's considered to be like overly male in particular like right. it doesn't seem to be with the exception of like joelle who still has a lot of like you can still see a lot of like eh, that's a weird way to write a woman i don't know do, do you have anything right, right. do you have anything to say to that criticism i think any book by a male is going to be uh fairly male i i I think i think it's uh it's sort of i think part of it is is um well first of all it was based off of hamlet which is Mm -hmm. um very male you know shakespeare um the the main family is based off of hamlet i also think that uh, a lot of it is based off of like david foster wallace's own experiences as like a tennis player and in in you know in rehab stuff like that and and so his, you know, um, his view on that is obviously going to be his own, which is a very um, male point of view. I, I think it, I think it's sort of, it, it feels less significant as someone who's, who's read his other work, like, um, for instance, Broom of the System, which has like a female pro- protagonist, mm-hmm. um, um, little expressionless animals, like a, a story with, there are plenty of stories with like, with like female protagonists or like, like female characters, um, I I do agree that there are way more prominent male characters though in 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 Infinite Jest. I just um, I, it, yeah. Well, I mean, I, even that though. I mean, it's uh, when when people when people are discussing the negative stereotype of uh, David Foster Wallace fans, it's almost exclusively like lit lit bros is what they're going after. So. I, yeah and and i think and i think that like so in my own personal experience i've met a lot of david foster wallace fans on the internet because like um super fans just sort of tend to congregate and i'd say it's about 50 50 males and mm-hmm. females um i would say that the really i haven't met too many really obnoxious ones but mm-hmm. but the really obnoxious ones tend to be male um oh yeah no but, what so, i i i yeah. get a lot i get a lot of uh messages for this and the only hate mail I've gotten, and I got some, especially early on when it was, I definitely hated the book less and I became less vitriolic as the show went on. But at right. first I might've taken some swings, but yeah, all the hate mail I got was 100% from men. So. Right. Right. And I think, I think a lot of them, like, you know, I don't know, maybe it's, it's sort of a sense of like, they feel personally attacked in some way by it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I don't really, I, I, but I also think that there's, there's a lot of stuff like, like I really relate to Hal, um, as a character. I, I don't think that's a good thing, but I, I do really relate <laughs> to him 
and like I don't think that that gender really plays plays into it as much because his his characteristics really are are super um like like you know being depressed being kind of a a burnout like feeling like you don't know where your life is going these are things that you know both genders will Mm -hmm. experience and i wonder i wonder if that might be why wallace kind of uh stripped him of sexuality a little bit i don't remember if it's in this or a recent episode, yeah. but they very specifically he's, state that he's more. He's, the the, the yeah. phrase they use is Mario was having enough sex for all the Incandenza boys. Well, well, Orin, basically. Orin, Orin. Yeah. That, that, that is completely a slip. I'm well, well aware Mario is not crushing it. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think Hal is just um pretty explicitly like like asexual and and just sort of um yeah I, I mean. I, I kind of I kind of like that uh, he doesn't have like like a love interest or anything that's like uh, or anything of the sort that's really really central to the plot. I don't know. I I just feel like um like that does sort of make him more of a um not so explicitly male character. Like if he, if he were if he were just like um in every chapter like trying to trying to get chicks or something it it would definitely feel less relatable to me personally Um, yeah honestly the most male thing about him is really just the fact that he's around other males all the time yeah and and i think some of that stuff like when they're talking like the the boys and at the academy like in the locker rooms and stuff and i think a lot of that is sort of the parody of the sort of uh, sort of parodying almost that like jock stereotype Mm -hmm. that um uh, you know, because some of the stuff is is really ridiculous. Um, uh, when they're they're doing the big and little buddy thing, and um, like, uh, and one of one of the little kids asks, like, uh, what happens if you have to like fart on the court or something? Uh-huh. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. and and then like, what if what if you don't know if, if it's a fart or a shit? Like, what do you do that? And it's just like it's it's sort of like making fun of the the types of like questions that like little boys will ask mm-hmm. i think <laughs> okay all right um so i think we're ready to get into the notes how do you feel about that ready yeah feel okay. great so like i said before uh 651 to 682 anytime you have anything to comment on just uh interrupt okay right. so so it is November 11th, year of the depend under, uh, yeah, adult undergarment. In the last episode, we saw the boys in the Enfield cafeteria after a forced exhibition match between Stice and Hal that Hal had nearly lost. We are now earlier in the day and seeing those events play out. The game attracts a little crowd, including Miss Helen Steeply from Moment Magazine, who watched the whole thing with the nice little aside that Hal doesn't seem to think she's the knockout that Oren described. I... <laughs> I love how everybody thinks Steeply is just gorgeous in a weird way. That that's one yeah, of the little yeah. details of this book that's adorable to me. Yeah, I I think like yeah, I think he says like thuggish allure. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, um, but 
Steepley says this is the first real match she's ever seen, which she says to pro-rector Aubrey DeLint, who was sitting next to her, under strict orders to not let her out of his sight. This is another little note I have here. Maybe it's just me, but in this scene, I'm picturing Steepley's voice being higher pitched like a woman, whereas with speaking with Moraith, I always just, uh, I'm picturing here like, ooh, I've never seen a game like this, while with Moraith, like, yeah, my, my dad died from MASH. So, yeah, that, that's, that's pretty accurate. Yeah. Um, that's kind of, I think that's how I picture it as well. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of like really dense, detailed mega paragraphs on like the individual details of uh, Hal and Stice's game that I really did not try to write down because they're just so, I, yeah. I, fe I feel like you can't take them part and parcel without kind of destroying the entire little painting he's trying to make. Yeah, it's definitely, um, I don't know if you've read like his, his um, article about Federer, but it's very reminiscent mm. of that. Like the he only, has a way of like the only sports tennis matches. Uh, the only sports related one I read was uh, Mary Austin broke my heart. And I don't think he gets into the specifics there. Tracy Austin. Tracy, what did I say? Mary Austin? Yeah. <laughs> Listen, we're playing, we're playing fast and loose here. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all right. Okay. Uh, Steeply is looking to speak to Hal about Hor or Orin. Orin, but CT won't allow it under any circumstances. Hal is making some creative points, which is atypical for him. He's having to pull out the stops to stay ahead of Stice. Um, out of nowhere, DFW gives us perspective on where the other characters are in relation to this moment, which I find neat. I'm waiting for that to pay off a little bit. Uh, 1,200 meters east, Gately is sleeping in his Lone Ranger sleeping mask. Four clicks northwest, poor Tony Krause is drug withdrawal time traveling in a bathroom stall. <laughs> and at Boston University School of Pharmacy, 2.8 clicks away, Pemulus and Struck have snuck past a librarian to enter. Tavis is in his office in between calls informing parents of their injured Eschaton children. And at the same time, <laughs> and this one I would leave the detail out, but if you go look up uh, Infinite Jensen, he was on a few episodes ago. He does illustrations. I know, from I know him. Yep. He was, he was yep. great. I also loved that we did the Zoom call, but he only did audio only, which was not, <laughs> a, was not a problem, but he's a little bit of a mysterious man to me, and I appreciate he kept that mystery just a little bit. Yeah. I, I love his work though. We we actually talked about doing like a comic collab or something at some point. Ooh, um, okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. But oh, I mentioned that because uh, this specific description here. At the same time, in Tucson, Oren and the Swiss hand model are uh, getting to it as she jumps to put her thighs on his shoulders in a sort of sexual oral sex Hurricane Rana, which is how I saw it. Hurricane Rana being a wrestling move where you don't your your mouth stays closed the whole time okay um <laughs> so back on the court more details of lobs and serves and sprangs and forehands and pivots delint explains that hal's gotten so good that a player's only real chance is to be crazy aggressive and hopes hal slips up steeply drops her pen into the metal bleachers quote clattered as only something dropped into a system of metal bleachers can clatter that's a great line yeah um Stice hits a serve that's right on the line of being in bounds. There are no linesmen on exhibition games. And Hal himself makes the call that was probably good, though this would cost him the game. Stife offers to do redo, but Hal says the fact that it was too fast to see means he earned the point, though he does say it unhappily. 
Stice yeah. still makes chewing faces during play, though he hasn't been allowed to chew gum on court since he accidentally inhaled a piece of gum and needed to be Heimlich. So part of the reason I keep all these notes is you don't know what's going to be important going right. on or not. I don't know if, like, it, it, at some point, you know, Stice could do something and say, like, that's for the point you gave me, Hal, as he goes into the lava Terminator 2 style. I don't know. That might be how this book ends, I'm assuming. <laughs> or he might swallow gum at some point, but... Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think a lot of this stuff is just like for the imagery it evokes. Like like the, the imagery of someone like on a tennis court inhaling gum and being uh heimlicked by their opponent is just like really funny. <laughs> but not only funny, but it does kind of make the world like very livable because it's dripping with detail. Like uh right. la- I- I'll probably mess the name up because I've done it every other time, but like lateral Alice Moore, like yep. in, in any other book. <laughs> their name would be CT's secretary just but you know Wallace wants everybody to have a backstory and like and it's just like that's another thing that just cracked me up the first time like like that sort of dark humor like she got in an accident and now she can only move sideways Mm -hmm. I'm like I don't think that's a thing but like (laughs) it's just like it evokes a very uh very like sort of hilarious hyper realism type imagery mm-hmm. but yeah definitely realistic like i mean even like i just said that like oh he gives every character a backstory like oh you mean like life yeah. where nobody is inserted to be a background character everybody has their own background thoughts and feelings okay right uh, steeply notes the fairness the boys play with that they seem like friends delint suggests that as an a- suggests that as an angle for the article friends off court bit foes on court the next game starts. Steeply notices he's never seen so many left-handed people in his life, and also that Maraith is left-handed. Uh, I'm left-handed, so that always devil. Okay. Um. <laughs> I always feel strong representation there for. See, I've actually I always felt uh, for whatever reason in in my family, my house growing up, everybody was left-handed except for me. Oh, I'm one of the, my family's like that too, but I'm one of the, the left-handed ones, so. Oh, so you're, but, but you're still in the dominant party of the family. Yeah, I, I'm in the dominant party at my family. It was just, it was, it, it kind of sucked when I had to go to school and I'm like, what, like the mouse clickers are on that side and like, <laughs> like you don't have any left-handed scissors and you know, you, and it was just like, it was, it was weird. Yeah, I'd been coddled. Oh, the scissors are pretty crazy. I remember uh, my my poor little brother wanted to play guitar like me so bad, but he couldn't play my guitar because it was strung for a right-handed person. So he would try to play it that way, and he just never ever got the hang. Of it. I play I play guitar that way, uh, right-handed, not restrung, left-handed. Yep. Oh, okay. So, so you just try to listen to my music show it to your brother and tell him it's possible to become <laughs> a, an, a, a, a semi-literate guitar player in that way. You hear that, Kenny? It's not too late. Okay. <laughs> um, DeLint says, unlike Stice and Wayne, who are killers on the court, Hal is a torturer. He wins by making things, uh, as opposed to Stice and Wayne, who just dominate, Hal will win by making things seem easy while putting the ball just beyond your reach. Rather than sheer domination, losing to Hal feels like victory being monkey in the middle, repeatedly out of reach of the other player. Steeply asks when she'll get to speak to Hal one-on-one, 
that's going to be a thing. No matter who steeply talks to here, everyone's like, yeah, you're not going to get to talk to Hal. Um, yeah. <laughs> Delint says they've never allowed one of the kids to be interviewed on campus. Also, Delint is repeatedly referring to steeply as babe. Uh, Delint says you really need to corner Tavis and demand a yes or no, but as a reporter, Steeply should be pretty skilled at this. But the answer will still probably be no. Steeply tries to defend the story as one exceptional brother speaking on another, but Delint repeats the company line that the kids are here to learn how to see, not hear about themselves, and that nothing fucks with junior talent more than attention. Steeply points out that calling going pro the show indicates these kids are entertainers and they should be getting some experience in that now. Delint says, assume wrongly for a second that I speak for the Academy. And he explains Stitt's philosophy that so many players get screwed up by the fame, not only on the rise, but then when they start to lose it. He hopes not only to keep, the, uh, not only to keep them undistracted while training, but hopes in the long run, this will mentally teach them to ignore the fame. This way, maybe they won't be so destroyed when they begin to lose it. Uh, here, I only have another paragraph, and then we can discuss all this. When she presses yeah. Delint further on what his decision would be, Delint tells her he wouldn't have let her any close than the perimeter gate. Quote, you're coming into a little slice of space and or time that's been carved out to protect talented kids from exactly the kind of activities you guys come in here to do. End quote. He wonders why they're even bothering to profile Oren, who's on the field four times a game and never gets hit. Says somebody like John Wayne is what you're looking for in your food group. Though, of course, as long as he's at Enfield, he's off limits to people like you. So, Aubrey DeLint, what a piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I, I, just, I do think it's, it's interesting. We'll, we'll, I guess we'll, we'll talk to it. Um, We'll talk about it more uh, after the, yeah, the it, giant footnote. But comes back up. Yeah, yeah, the whole like, um, like trajectory of like fame and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And I think I think David Foster Wallace sort of felt a little bit of that. Um, you know, at, around the time he was writing Infinite Jest, I think um, yep. you know he was sort of going through that that sort of like rising fame crisis. Mm -hmm. So, he didn't want it to get to his head or whatever. So the closest, just because I know more about it, although I think I can immediately make the attachment to Infinite Jest and David Foster Wallace, is in music. There's always known as the sophomore slump. Because right. the, the first album, you have your entire life from when you first learn how to be a musician to whenever you get noticed enough to record an album to re write that music. But then once that's out, especially if it gets attention, that's great. Now you need to do the same thing, be as successful, and this time you have two years tops to do it. Right. And that's why a lot of people never get around to it. Um, how, uh, how big was Broom of the System when it came out? Like, what was – and I know you're younger, so you weren't there for this. But, like, do you have any idea what his reputation was as far as, like, an up-and-coming guy – prior to infinite jest yeah um he was he was like known in, in literary circles um mm. he wasn't exactly famous he taught at some at some schools um like before infinite jest and he was like and as as an emeritus faculty member mm. um and broom of the system was one of those ones that was so so he it was his senior year thesis in college i'm now older than he was when he wrote that which just um makes me feel like uh, a total failure in life 
But oh, I, I have said many times, never look up how successful your heroes were at your age. Oh, God. Da- yeah. David Bowie had released eight incredible albums by the time he was my age. And I just try not to think yeah. about that. Yeah, the Beatles were already like doing, you know, Paul McCartney was, was writing yesterday when he was my age. I mean, it's just, yeah. Oh God! Um, but, yeah, no. I have a, I have a comedian friend who worded it perfectly because he turned like thirty. He said, "When the Beatles were my age, they were just wrapping up being the Beatles." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it's it, but but yeah, he he wasn't. I wouldn't say he's famous. I'd say he 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 had a, he had a short story collection under his wing, um, mm. "Girl with Curious Hair." He had uh, "Room of the System." He'd been. Um, you know, he, he'd done some, some work for literary, like, um, some pieces for literary magazines, mm-hmm. um, like, like the one with, um, uh, uh, David Lynch and, oh, okay. um, the cruise was around the same time as infinite jest, I think. Um, yeah, but, um, but he wasn't like, like a, a household name for sure. Infinite jest was like so heavily marketed, um, so as to make him a household name that, that like when, when, when it came out, he was very much like sort of thrown into the the spotlight as like you know mm. the the one of the like the young genius sort of. I mean, okay. he was he was thirty three when so when he, he wrote was, it. He was kind of like, and I don't think anybody else has made this comparison or ever will again. David Foster Wallace was kind of like the Metallica, and what I mean by that is. If you were in that if you were into that kind of thing, you knew he was around. And then one day, the Black Album comes out, and everyone, it, everyone in the mainstream thought that was Metallica's first album. It was in fact their fifth. So right, it had been exactly. like slowly building up to this. Yeah, because because uh, honestly, besides the diehard fans, no one reads Room of the System. Like, <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them, like Pale King, is like you know, released like after he died um unfinished but uh but a lot of people read that just because you know but but they kind of think of infinite jest as like the one that sort of launched him uh, as a right as a writer okay Okay. um so let's get into uh so this is this upcoming section is the specific reason you wanted to do this episode so we could talk about good old marlon bain um yeah. starting it off we just see a series of communiques first is steeply reaching out to bane Oren's childhood friend who spent much time around the incandenza clan and would he accept an interview noting marlin's distaste for meeting people outside his home or office marlin responds with a letterhead from the acme saprogenic greetings company saying fire <laughs> away <clears throat> and this takes us directly to footnote 269 an interview between the two so Bain and Oren met as 10-year-old tennis players. After Bain's parents died in a freak car accident, he became a frequent hanger-on at the Incandenza household and became one of the first students at Enfield. Bain and Oren were inseparable up until the age of 15. Bain's puberty versus Oren's late development led to Bain destroying him in tennis, and Oren took it hard. They both ended up messing around with drugs but quitting soon after. Oren, because his preferred drug became sex, which he found he needed his wits about him. Uh, And Bane, because he had a traumatic experience ingesting non-life-threatening hallucinogens at a larval age that nobody should be taking them. These psychotropic experiences have left Bane with a vague, unspoken disability that he still struggles with. And this led him to give up, uh, led to him giving up tennis and the academy. 
at 17. Yeah, little thing there. This is uh, this might be my own little issue. I have a lot of friends who are way into like hallucinogenics and uh, right. very, very strong marijuana, which, you know, I smoke weed, but whatever. But I do think there has been a little bit of an overcorrection the last 10 years or so where everybody wants to be like, no, marijuana is great for everybody. Hallucinogens are great for, you know, open your mind. Whereas I, I, I know several people who like have histories of mental illness in their family and it didn't really kick on for them until they really messed around with hallucinogens. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And like in history too, like Sid Barrett was an example mm-hmm. of you know, someone who, who he had, he, he was predisposed for like schizophrenia, but he didn't, it didn't really, it didn't really set in until he started doing LSD. So mm-hmm. it's definitely, yeah, it, it's definitely a thing. And, and I think like, uh, you know, like, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not anti-drug by any means, but, um, no. but I think that like, uh, the, like, uh, that marijuana even is, can be addictive, you know? Um, oh, yeah. and, uh, and and it has so much. It's so much more potent than it was um, in in the sixties and seventies. Mm-hmm. Believe me, as somebody looking for like low THC stuff right now, it's it's not easy to find at all. Like yeah. even yeah. even at dispensaries. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Bane then had a brief sojourn. Oh yeah, has a brief sojourn on the homoeroticism of American football. Uh, yeah. What would you? <laughs> penetration and the simultaneous seeking and and yet avoiding physical male contact quote it's like swinburne sat down on his soul's darkest night and designed an organized sport that's a great line i don't know who swinburne is is that some kind of literary reference i i I don't i don't know who it is i'm assuming he's gay um just based on this the the context I, i would say on the context it seems definitely I'll be honest, I am really just uh, kind of padding this out as I Google who Swinburne is. Okay, Al Gernon, Charles Swinburne, an English poet, 1837 to 1909, um, wrote about many taboo topics such as lesbianism, cannibalism, sadomasochism, and anti-theism. Okay, so there we go. That's as much as I'm willing to look up and read live on the show, but all right, it's good to know. Now we all know. Um, Can't believe I've not looked that up before. I just kind of like, yeah, some oh, dude. I mean, I, I wrote it down as a particularly interesting line and then didn't bother to look it up before <laughs> doing this. So. Yeah. Um, in Candenza, James was working on a whole new kind of film cartridge at the time of his suicide, driving him to drink every day and lose his sanity. Bain mentions how James began using Joelle more and more in his new film that was driving him insane, and this led to her growing apart from Oren. And that in the days preceding James' suicide, there was some word written on the fog glass of his yellow Volvo that rained a curse down in all directions. Now, I know that, what was it? Avril had an affair because she thought James was having an affair with Joelle? Well, Avril just has a lot of affairs, I yes. think. It's just sort of the, yeah, I, I think she thought um, he was having an affair with Joel. They never really resolve um, who the, who was name was written on the, on the car. Um, I, mm. I definitely have a theory, but. Um, Give me the theory. Uh, I think it's Oren. I think, I think mm. Avril and Oren had some incesty stuff going on. But. See, I've, I've heard whisperings of that, but I still haven't 
directly see I, I think Bane kind of hints at it oh yeah here a it, little bit but uh it becomes explicit um mm. later so like it's definitely uh, the, it's very vague still but but there's definitely some sort of Oedipus thing going on um especially since like Oren has like a, a homewrecker kink you know mm-hmm. yeah he like uh-huh. he like he likes married women with children Right, that he that he can make them love him explicitly. Which, if you had a mom who loved you a little bit too much or in the wrong ways, I could kind of see how that goes. Right, right. And yeah, I get. I guess if anything, do we ever get a clear? Uh, this one I'm not sure of. Do we ever get a clear, or even like a strong leaning into why exactly James killed himself? Um, I mean, yeah, it, it's it's sort of uh, like. So later, I, I don't know if you want me to spoil it or not, but... People, um, fa- fast forward ahead 10 minutes if you don't want something spoiled. Wait, yeah, not, not right. 10 minutes, three minutes. Okay. Yeah, so... You have three uh, minutes, spoil. <laughs> the, the, the wraith, of, the ghost of, of James and Condenza visits Gately in the hospital and um, tells him about how he was just so frustrated with... Um, with the fact that he felt like he couldn't communicate with Hal. He felt like Hal was like, like closing off to him and he was, uh, you know, and, and he, he made this film, this uh, lethally addicting film in order to um, like connect with Hal um, essentially. Um, And, you know, it became lethally addicting, but that's, that's the film that was sort of driving him insane and that he Mm -hmm. felt like, um, you know, uh, I, I think that was a huge contributing factor to his suicide. You'll also notice at the start of um, the book how Hal is in that interview and he can't communicate with, mm-hmm. like, he keeps saying stuff, but they, they don't hear him. Um, and so, so there's definitely this big theme of, of like, like Hal um, being unable to, to communicate with people. Um, mm-hmm. Also earlier in the book, uh, in Condenza, the, the father in Condenza, James, uh, poses mm. as a, a com- conversationalist yeah um and and Hal is talking and talking and 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 James is just pretending like he's not saying mm. anything so so, so yeah it, that, that, that was actually very confusing early in the book especially after just meeting Hal where he's having trouble being understood this is before you realize in the rest of the book that the incandenzas have a tendency to have their own discussions with themselves while talking to each other Right. Which is definitely yeah. what James does, definitely what Oren does with him, everybody but Mario, pretty much. Yeah, so it's it's pretty much like yeah, like the part with, with um with Oren and Hal, how Oren's talking about um like some subject mm. which is like his like a, a woman that he's trying to seduce and Hal is talking about how he's he's trying to get all of his nail clippings into the garbage can. And mm. it's just like they're just not connecting like they're both saying talking about completely different things and just completely disregarding you know uh what the other one's saying so so i think i think it's supposed to sort of be just like like this family has major communication issues with each other um um there's also theories of of like um of like dmz which is like the the potent uh drug that grows on on mold Mm -hmm. um that um you know hal ate some mold um early in the book too when he was younger Mm -hmm. avril freaked out and um you know so could that have been 
DMZ and he's, he's been like a, a DMZ addict this whole time. And, and that's what accounts for. So there, there are lots of theories, but yeah, that, 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 that's what I was expecting. I was, uh, again, this is just in my knowledge, the way I saw things jacking up is it seemed like he had had that mold before and I didn't know about anything in secret. All I knew was uh, Pemulus had had planned for them all to take DMZ a little bit after the, the Whataburger and Independence, Interdependence Day. And I, I assumed we still haven't gotten to that point yet that that's when Hal takes it and that has some effect on his condition that we see at the beginning of the book. Yeah, you'll see. But it's, it's, it's definitely one of those things that's sort of left open a little bit. Um, but, mm. but I think it's pretty safe to say that uh, James's suicide had something to do with like, with like Hal. Um, uh, but but it, you'll, you'll kind of, you don't really get to hear directly from James until you hear the conversation he has with Gately um, in the hospital. But, okay. I'm, I'm yeah. looking forward to the Wraith ever since I heard of the concept That's of the, the wraith. wraith. That's the Wraith. It's, it's James, yeah. Nice. Okay. And, yeah. <laughs> um, so, discussing Oren's early pickup methods, which involved uh, asking a woman her ideal man so he could fake being that for the night. Bane says he doesn't care for it, mentions that this posed aloofness is, if anything, an extreme dichotomy, that it is a pose of poselessness, that Oren is portraying himself as open and sincere while completely shutting himself off to people. Great line here, though. He says, for real openness, take a look at C.T. Tavis, and you'll see how it's just about as alluring as Tourette's syndrome. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Um, that, this actually reminds me like, like, um, uh, brief interviews with hideous men, which isn't, uh, the book that he published after infinite jest is all about like, like men essentially like Oren who mm -hmm. are just like complete, like, like womanizers and like sexists and, and how they, they go about getting women. And this really is super, like, you can already see the seeds of it forming in this mm -hmm. footnote, just sort of his, his hideous men characters. Cause they're very um they're very like like specific and and you know it's it's like you you get it's sort of a trip into the psyche of like these these people who are um who are kind of like Oren, but in mm -hmm. in different ways okay yeah i definitely want to look into that you know what it is it seems like the smaller his work is the more i genuinely like wallace because i really like his essay stuff mm -hmm. this yeah. one he just he threw everything at the kitchen sink and the kitchen sink at this one, and it was just a bit much for me. Oh, I, yeah, I, I, I am I am enjoying it at this point. Although, honestly, any other world I would be where I wasn't doing this podcast, I would probably just be skimming through to like, okay, just <laughs> I I, I want to finish this already. Yeah, which which I I didn't want to finish it the first time I read it. I I when it ended, I was like, it's too short, and it's like the longest <laughs> book ever. So. Yeah. No, I get that though. I get wanting to live inside something and then just like, no, come back. Let me be here. <laughs> yeah. Um, Bane considers Avril the most consummate mind fucker he's ever met. And she taught Oren well. And Oren now thinks they only, the only way away from that person is hate and renunciation, which is, he sees as another weakness of self-definition through defiance of another entity. Quote, I again, I will remind you that Oren and I are on the outs a bit at the moment, so some judgments may be temporarily short on charity, unquote. <laughs> uh, Bane says that Oren was always a terrible liar, 
mentioned today that Bane and Orin, I actually like this little thing here on how he's so bad. Uh, Bane and Orin got really high instead of watching Mario and Hal. Avril called and the phone rang and rang and rang. When she asked him about it later, uh, Orin blankly said, I have no response to that. (laughs) Hilariously, Avril's pathology led her to believe her children could not lie to her. And so this incident was considered a strange cosmic curiosity as opposed to the simplicity of catching her son in a lie he was too lazy to make a reason out of. Yeah. Uh, we have another thing about that there. Tells the story of himself and Oren being high and stealing Avril's car. Oh, this poor yeah. dog. Um, God, I hate this story. <laughs> stealing <laughs> Avril's car to take down to a bar where legal drinking age ran on the honor system. I had some places there when I was 19. Uh, they noticed people <laughs> jumping and screaming and waving to whom they just waved back before getting out and discovering that Avril's dog had been leashed to the bumper, as she sometimes did. The poor little guy kept up as long as he could before being grated on hot asphalt to a poor furry nubbin. Back at the headmaster's house, Avril was crying pitifully as Oren held the leash and nubbin left and made a ludicrous story of a car that swerved into them and caught the leash, but nobody bothered to catch the make and model or even color of the car. And Avril just pathetically accepted every word. I love how they say, like, like he not only did a hit and run, he did, like, a hit and pulverize. Like, he kept running over and then backing back over the dog. Uh, and running yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. They're just trying to make it, like, plausible how this dog could have ended up like this from getting hit by a car. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, I guess, I guess that does say something to her psychology. They lay it out pretty significantly there that she has like, she has such like an obsessive over mothering for them that like she uh, psychologically cannot accept wrongdoing on their part, like something to right. that degree. Um, yeah. And, and it also goes into um, talking about how like, um, you know, like, like, the more subtle types of like abuse right um because like it, it, it like if you raise a kid who believes that you're the best mother in the world and you can do no wrong but he thinks mm-hmm. he himself is like a pitiful um sack of shit essentially mm-hmm. um are you a good mother really you know like um so and it kind of goes through all these scenarios of like different you know yeah, like Bain talks about his own father, that uh, his father, if his father's parental will was ever opposed, he would enter psychotic depressions and clean his gun all day. Would that count as direct abuse still? Yeah, I mean, I think, <laughs> you know, but, but then some of them are more like, like you know, if, if, if the father did all his son's homework and didn't let the son figure out how to do it on his own, is that abuse, you know, where it's kind of a more, like, I had the, gray line. The, this is kind of an acute example, but I try to throw in my personal stuff whenever ever. Uh, my dad was like a really good artist. Like he could draw very well. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was like five or six and I wanted to be like my dad. I wanted to learn how to draw. So I, I was trying to draw a picture of a wrestler I liked named the Ultimate Warrior. And my dad asked, what are you drawing? I said, the Ultimate Warrior. She said, oh, let me see. And then he just drew the Ultimate Warrior for me. He's like, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Like, Yes, Dad. That's what I wanted out of this, a picture, of not to learn how to do it. Anyway, that's part of the reason I think I became a musician, because he didn't know shit about music. So People used to do that in, in middle school with their, their Rubik's Cubes. Because they, they, I could solve, I, I guess I still can, but mm. I, 
I went through a phase where I just was obsessed with solving Rubik's cubes and, and people would just bring me their like five-year-old unsolved Rubik's cubes and make me solve it for them. And I'm like, doesn't that kind of defeat the fun? And they're like, no, I just don't want to have to look at it messed up. <laughs> oh, God. I remember hearing friends like, oh yeah, I just tore the stick. They'd get like the cheapo Rubik's cubes with the stickers on them. Yeah. Like, I just moved the stickers and it's just like, why? That's, that's like, that's, what's the fun in that yeah it's like why would anybody want a video game that's literally like you press x and it says you win you're a winner exactly yeah hmm. uh but yeah i like the little line here um how do you quantify that when you can see so many examples of devout loving nurturing parents whose kids turn out to be depressed addicted fuck-ups who believe they're unworthy of love who just lucked into having parents good enough to love them despite their hideousness yeah. Right. Um, says something about Avril was simply not right. Creepy. Even after the dog killing, she went to such ridiculous degrees to not blame Oren that it became disgusting in its own right. That she was ignoring her son getting high. Oh yeah, was ignoring her son getting high and killing the dog done for Oren's sake or for Avril's? Was it for Oren's self-esteem or her own vision as a stellar mom? Yeah. Yeah. I like thoughts about that when it's always like, I remember I, I went through a dumb Ayn Rand phase that thankfully I grew <laughs> out of. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm a white boy from the suburbs. It's kind of, it, it happens. It's inevitable. Yeah. Exactly. But uh, I'm still in my Christopher Hitchens phase. So maybe uh, one there day you I'll go. Yeah, I guess, <laughs> maybe I, one day I'll grow out of that. I mean, he, he was definitely brilliant. I just got, I got sick of the atheist guys at one point because it was just really? like, yeah, it's I, I I think I think when that was like really peaking off like Hitchens and uh who's the guy the god delusion Richard Dawkins. Dawkins, yeah. Yeah. I think they were necessary at the time cuz particularly obviously we're still living in a country that's very Christian influenced but Yeah. In during the early chunk of the 2000s the George W Bush era there was like a lot of evangelical stuff going yeah. on everywhere that was really uh not fun and that's why i think some of it can sort of come off a bit like like overzealous now you know because it's like all right like what what are you kind of fighting against but back then it really was like a lot more of a sort mm -hmm. of a brave stance to to sort of take whereas now if you do it you just look like an asshole but yeah well it, it was more necessary then i forget what role he had in the bush government but there was a guy named john ashcroft who was uh he he was such like a puritanical prude that like he was giving a statement in like the hall of justice who and it's like a statue where one of her breasts are uh exposed and he actually demanded it be covered like we we need this breast covered up we need this filth yeah. covered up behind me while I give the details of how many brown people we killed in Iraq last week. So yeah, yeah, that needs a little. Oh, what I was going to say about the Ayn Rand thing is um, yeah. <laughs> when they were really when she was really preaching selfishness and she was making that argument of like, well, people who give to charity, do they give to charity because they actually care about people? No, they get they're getting the feeling they are feeling good at having given charity. Therefore it all comes down to selfishness, pretty much just ultra, ultra, like really doing a lot of backflips on people's real motivation in that case. Right, but, but even if that were the real motivation, like by the consequentialist logic, you would have to say that that's still 
a moral act because if, if the if the outcome is good right who cares not, why you did it right well the problem is if you go to the extremes on either side you are going to have uh, ideological purists of and course. for them it's like it, it's the easiest thing in the world is to call somebody a phony without doing anything yourself you right know? And that was yeah. definitely the nonsense back then. Like, well, who, who cares if it, if it leads to people not starving to death, I'm fine with somebody getting some brownie points for that. I don't, that's, that's a fine exchange rate. Yeah. No. Um, ooh, and uh, old impression Oren would do of his mother that used to get a big laugh involved a grotesque smile and getting closer and closer until your faces were flat against each other and breaths were intermingled. Uh, brings to mind the philanthropist who seems repellent, not in spite of his... Oh, so this is actually directly in what I was just yep. saying. I forgot. Who seems repellent, not in spite of his charity, but because of it. The one you can tell is looking merely for targets to project how good a person he is onto the world, as opposed to any genuine sense of concern for fellow humor and suffering. They need pain and suffering to continue, for it is their own virtue they seek, not helping others. If Steeply finds Oren, so, oh yeah, I almost forgot that Bane was saying all this too steeply. Uh, if yeah, Ste yeah. If Steeply finds Oren to be a great lover, which is his reputation, perhaps consider the impression he does of his mother of lovering smothering and ask what the true motive is behind his actions. Yeah, I love that. And like the, the person closing in arms wide, smiling, like it's just such a menacing, like, I would, I would like to, I can picture that in my head pretty clearly of somebody just like giving a big, like, you know, you go get him, sunny boy, smile, and then just like approaching closer and closer until, you know. Yeah. When somebody wants to be so close to you, they need to envelop you physically. Yeah. Which, I mean, that would kind of point to the incest thing, I guess, so. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of, a lot of hints. So oh, yeah, yeah. It, so this is that section there was uh, specifically why you wanted this episode. Yeah, why do you love that section? So it's a good section. I'm just curious your own personal attachment to it. I just I just I just think like um Avril's like psychology is is very fascinating. Um mm. you know, uh I I think she's uh I I think she's a really interesting character, very sinister character, but um and and like the dynamic between between her and Oren um, is very interesting as well. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Uh, mm. I, I think it's mostly, I, I think the part that resonated me, with me the first time was, was the part talking about like, you know, like, like what, uh, like, what does it mean to be like a good parent sort of? Mm -hmm. um, and like, can you, like, is it just, you know, like, obviously, like by all accounts, Avril is not, a good parent but like she she did everything in her power to you know seem like a good parent and i just think that's mm. sort of a really interesting nuance yeah and I, i'd say it's one you see in a real life often enough talk about highbrow lowbrow um me and my fiance have been watching gilmore girls during this entire yeah. quarantine uh so there's a little bit of uh the main character's mother emily gilmore who they're very they're very wealthy so there's just the constant like oh i i, I want to help out like but your helping out involves right. nothing of what your child actually wants it has to do with how other people right. are going to see and judge you based on what she's doing 
or or needs like uh the way that she like coddled Orin after he ran over her dog well he dragged mm-hmm. her dog <laughs> behind his car yeah um like like that's just not good good parenting like like if if your kid kills your dog because he gets high on drugs and goes to a a, a bar like he should mm. be punished for that like yeah <laughs> it's just like the normal thing to do mm. i've had to have discussions with my nephew about that before because he can be very like defiant and one of the things i've told him a few times is like listen, I, I'm not, I'm not doing this to be mean to you. It's just, you need to be an adult one day and you and I are stuck together right. as long as we're alive. And just making the point, like, listen, nobody is just an adult one day. People have to teach you how to be an adult. It can't right. just, it can't just all be love and kisses, but Ooh, would it be nice if it could, but right. Okay. So next check, uh, next section, we are back at Enfield and the setting is simultaneously happening beneath the Stice and Hal game. There are dozens of tunnels on campus, and currently the bulk of the under-14 boys pardon me, are in the dark with trash bags and flashlights. One, because small U.S. boys like exploring dark hidden things. And two, it's a pseudo-punishment for the non-injured Eschaton players. Pros will have to tra- traverse the tunnel soon to retrieve the inflated lung equipment, and the boys are making sure the tunnels are clear and clean of debris. The kids don't mind it as they're often down here anyway. Most under-14s end up forming tunnel clubs as it is. Not for any specific reason, with the sole exception of the universal rule, no girls allowed. And Kitten Plan, despite being responsible for much eschaton damage, is not down there with them now for this very reason, despite being assigned to do it. Chu and the boys told her they'd mark her as present if she'd scoot off. She accepts, an interesting little line here, as even the butchest little girls lack this proto-masculine fetish for enclosure underneath things. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that's a funny line. I'm curious how true that is. Because as far as boys, like, yeah, any to this day, any dark, mysterious area I will still wander into just to yeah. see what's going on. I mean, I was, I've always been like a... a more like sort of masculine um or like i wouldn't say butch but like um like sort of a tomboy and Mm -hmm. i I, i've never like like i've still never been into like gross stuff you know like Mm -hmm. picking up rats with your hands and stuff like that i don't i wouldn't say that's universal i i'd just say like yeah they they try to make that they try to make that a boy thing but that's some things are just kind of gross they're just like things that no one should do yeah yeah (laughs) um blot is the only one with them who's not an eschatonite or tunnel club boy but he claimed to have seen a rat or feral hamster down in the tunnels and the other boys are excited to possibly catch one or even just beat up blot if it turns out he's jerking them around they saunter around in the dark giggling one boy sneakily tickles another until he's caught and punched in the arm Broken ball machines, tennis balls, empty visine bottles make up the bulk of the garbage, along with exfoliated pledge husks. Aside from discarded microwaves or refrigerator, which Chu marks down for adults to take out later, the boys secretly hope that a feral hamster discovery may distract enough to take the heat off their big buddies in trouble, Axford and Pemulus and Hal. It would also explain the weird objects moving and appearing on campus with, and again, a nice little line here, 
quote, feral hamsters being notorious draggers and rearrangers of stuff they can't eat but feel compelled to fuck with anyway. <laughs> I love yeah. that little one. I know. Um, this would, of course, make the Tunnel Club boys heroes. So I, I have a dumb little story here uh, that being compelled to fuck with something. Um, <laughs> this actually ties in with what we were talking about, the atheism thing. So I was in my early 20s and I was hanging out with some friends down in Baltimore where uh, we were, I, I did a lot of indie film stuff then. So it was like a big production group we were with. So we went out with some guys and this was like the peak of like my heavy metal paganism, atheism, like, you know. Paganism and atheism? It goes in and out, <laughs> particularly with a lot of like the Northern European uh, satanic groups, which right. even, even that goes all over the place because some of them are atheists, some are Anton LaVey Satanists, some are really stupid and genuinely believe in a devil and are literal Satan worshipers. <laughs> yeah. But one of their aversions to Christianity they always tried to make plain was like, uh, you know, they came here and they, they tore down our great, you know, viking landmarks and holy places and they put up churches in their stead and like norway in particular had a real trouble trouble with uh, church burnings in the early 90s with right. like young heavy metal guys using this as their reasoning behind it well mm -hmm. anyway i was in baltimore and i was at the peak of this point and we're walking home from a bar and one of my friends just says hey jesse look it's a church and i look up and i instantly see a crucifix and without missing a beat, I spit on it. And then <laughs> without also missing a beat is one of the Baltimore guys who was with us that I didn't know was a very devout Catholic. And uh, oh, yeah. yeah, so yeah, we, got, we got in a little fist fight on the steps of a church. I was the dickhead atheist that day. And I probably <laughs> deserved the punches I took for that. But yeah. But now oh, it's a fun story on a podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. Can you think of any weird compulsion stories that have happened in, in your past? Compulsion to fuck with things that should not be fucked with. Yeah. Um, or even just, just like, I don't know. I feel like everybody has a little, it's not enough to just have a weird negative feeling. Like, I felt compelled to spit on that cross for whatever right, reason. Right. And all it took was a few punches to cure me of that. But Yeah. <laughs> Oh God, I don't know. Maybe I, I I'm realizing I'm a real straight edge. I guess mm. I've I haven't really done done much <laughs> edgy stuff. <laughs> That's a, if you skip the edge lord part of your life, you're you're doing much better than a lot of other oh, people. <laughs> I was I was for sure an edge lord, but I was like a an edge lord like within like a nerd edge lord. Like, Ooh, okay. I, Describe. I'm, I'm curious. <laughs> well, well, like, you know, I'd, I'd argue with, with people about everything. Maybe that's kind of where, where it comes in, you know, mm -hmm. like, like, um, I, and I, I still am a bit, but you know, I, I've, all you need to know is like, like, um, I, I thought Holden Caulfield was like the most relatable, mm. um, person ever. And I just felt like, like, you know, I, I totally connected to him. Um, so <laughs> make that what you will. Um, but hey, if there, if there was any time for a, a, a catcher in the rye fan to maybe consider taking out a president, now, now might be the time. 
Just putting it out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just putting oh, it out there. God. Yeah, you don't, that's, that's you don't know when this episode was recorded, FBI. You can't put shit on me. Sorry, you were saying? There's always, like, like uh, top books that, that serial killer men or, like, men, red flag men read. And the top two are always Infinite Jest and Catcher in the Rye. And I'm not a man. I'm just, like, Ooh, like I didn't uh, know Infinite. make me, like, a double red flag? Maybe. I didn't know Infinite Jest was up there, but... It's not really a serial killer book. It's more like a pretentious mm. frat boy book. People think. Yeah, um, I don't. I, I don't yeah. know. I, I haven't heard Infinite Jest tied to any. Like, but if you're if you're a serial killer and a pretentious fat boy, a frat boy, that's not a good combo, I guess. No, but it, Catcher mm. in the Rye is definitely more associated with with the shootings. I the first reason this is really morbid, and this will give you another uh, insight into my nerd edginess, but I read it because of the John Lennon assassination. I was like, Mm. I was like, I want to find out this guy's motive for, for killing my, my musical hero. Mm. And, and then I was like, wow, I really like this book. I don't know how to feel about that. Like, Mm. uh, I don't know how to feel about having something in common with, with that guy, but (laughs) I'm trying to remember what was his specific on. I know, I know it was more than uh, just catcher in the rye. I know he had like some real paranoid type thing. What was Chapman's motivation for killing Lennon again? Um. Well, it, it was mostly the fact that that in catcher in the rye, the whole crux of it is like Holden wants to pre- preserve. Well, he wants to preserve his own innocence, really. But but that mm. sort of um that sort of manifests itself in him trying to preserve the innocence of like like his sister and like little kids and and he just like he he thinks that just growing up is just a bad thing and it should not have to happen to anyone mm. um and 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 lennon was um you know uh chapman was sort of worshiped lennon and and had this this conception of him in his mind and and he he wanted to um to to kill lennon to preserve his innocence um, which, which, if you, it doesn't make sense to me because if you know anything about John Lennon, like his innocence was not preserved um, oh. very long before that. But, mm-hmm. um, but that was sort of, and and he signed like he 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 submitted Catcher in the Rye as his like his testimony, and he 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 like signed it like holding copy, like he he was just it, like a lot of it. He's just crazy and like like um like you know. It's not like the book really had anything to do with it. It's just he sort yeah, of yeah. That would be that. That would be that, that. would be pretty bad if J.D. Salinger got the news and exclaimed, "Finally, somebody gets it!" But <laughs> finally, so yeah. Uh, <laughs> but but um, yeah. So that's kind of what I I realized after reading. I was like, "Wow, that that's a stretch. That's mm-hmm. a that's a big reach." Um, I thought it was gonna be like about like a serial killer manual or something mm. but well i was gonna um, say when you mentioned uh books that tend to be tied to violence i know the turner Diner- diaries is a big one and that one i've is, not read that maybe i should no <laughs> no it, you you can get everything you need to know uh you know what i'll i'll put this promotion out there he doesn't need it he's way more popular than me there's a guy on youtube who uh has a bit of like a thought piece kind of series his goes by the name of thought slime but he oh, has, I know who that is, actually. I've uh, seen some look, of his videos. Look up his one on the Turner Diaries because he reads – it's like a half hour long, but he reads, like, the specifics of the book out loud and talks about mm-hmm. how it got – like, it's entirely the motivation behind a lot of right-wing militias, the Oklahoma City bombing. And it's, yeah. it's a really 
poorly written book on like on top of being hateful garbage it's also like really not well written which makes it kind of funny that's the kind of thing i expected catcher in the rye to be it really wasn't at all it Mm. was just about a depressed kid but (laughs) um Mm. yeah be be careful who you identify with that's i don't mean that you personally i just mean the world Um, in general yeah okay uh the boys find a massive fridge down there that can't be moved as someone says they smell a fart they begin to wonder if someone threw their fridge down there without taking out the food which turns out to be the case as they open it and find rotted mayonnaise and foodstuffs and maggots the stink is so so stank they literally run away from it so i'm waiting for that to pay off because that just kind of begins and ends very like innocently i thought they were going to find something horrible down there instead they found a smelly refrigerator and ran away in postmodern lit you should never expect things to pay off yes that would be asking too much postmodernist um yeah that 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 insinuates a grand narrative which they're trying to do away with but i need i need to uh, i'm looking forward to being done with this book specifically just so i can go back to reading normally because i double screwed up (laughs) that I'm reading this for this project and the other thing that I'm reading just for fun is Brothers Karamazov, but it's, it's two thousand page novels. I have, I have a whole bookshelf behind me with so God. much stuff I want to read and yeah. I'm just stuck between these two behemoths separated by a century and a half that just won't let me out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh God. I, I'm, yeah, I feel I'm currently like, uh, doing grad school and working mm. a full-time job um which is why the the weird time for this yeah <laughs> i'm just like insanely busy but yeah i oh so much so much reading i haven't had time to read mm. for for fun in such a long time oh i've well, heard so many people say who went for like english as like a master's or something like that that it kind of ruined their love of reading which is the entire reason they got into that field in the first place i mean honestly yeah like like david foster wallace is really a huge part of why i went to to masters wanted to get a master's in writing is because he just like changed how i see like writing and how i like conceptualize Mm -hmm. like literature that sounds so pretentious but no no um, no, i've we've actually hit on that topic before so uh, as a musician, my favorite music is like prog rock, prog metal stuff. Yeah, me too, me too, me too. Yeah? What are you into? Pink Floyd, King Crimson, okay. uh, Genesis, Love Genesis. Uh, The Who, uh, yeah. Okay, so I got more into like the latter day stuff. I have a Dream Theater tattoo here who were very, mm-hmm. very influenced by Pink Floyd and King Crimson. But uh, one of the reasons for that is just music was always magical to me which is part of the reason i wanted to learn how to play guitar and make music and write songs the problem is like once you kind of know how it's made i feel like it makes music a little less magical as a whole yeah which is why music as my undergrad and i i would definitely say yeah but that but that's the beauty of if you have all that and you can kind of like see the strings of how music works but then you listen to prog music and you have no idea what's coming at any given point. Yeah. Which is why as a writer, I could see like, oh, here's a guy on a whole other goddamn level. So Exactly. Yeah. That that's a, like I kind of knew the formula and, and then he just completely trashed the formula mm-hmm. and I just did not know what to expect. Mm-hmm. And 
uh, it just sort of made, like, like I hadn't, I'd, I'd sort of been in a writing slump before, before getting into David Foster Wallace. I was so, I was just kind of like, what's, what hasn't been done before? Mm-hmm. But, um, but then I sort of, I, I read his stuff and I was like, wow, like there's like this whole other like dimension of writing that I just haven't mm-hmm. like even touched on yet. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, so this this is one podcast where I have made convincing arguments that David Foster Wallace is both Metallica and prog rock. I I give right. this away for free every week, people, and I hope you should appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, we're gonna wrap it up here in the last section. During what we're back to watching uh, Steeply and Hal and Stice's game. During a break in the game, Delint leaves Steeply to follow Hal into the locker room. Delint's place is taken by Prorector. I don't even guess how to pronounce this. Thierry... I say like Potrincourt, but I, I yeah. know that's wrong. But All right, we're going to go Thierry Potrincourt, a tall Quebecer former satellite pro. She tells Steeply they were told to be unfriendly to her, but she'll be friendly. She also adds, quote, my family's loved ones are also large of size. It is difficult to be large. You said it, sister. Um, Steeply made an early spy decision to let any mention of girth pass as if he slash seed been made the decision had made the decision as a very large team girl. Um, (laughs) Steeply asked Poutrincourt if she'd like to converse in French, which she accepts. They discuss the nature of adolescent sports stars. Poutrincourt pointing out a 15 year old girl won Wimbledon in 1887 that tennis is a sport necessitating skill, not size or muscle like hockey or basketball. Poutrincourt has strange pronunciation and syntax. Uh, for example, saying a strange, non-typical French word for reflexes that will require yeah. Steeply to see if there's a file on her. And uh, Yeah, we, we get the hint here that Steeply is speaking Parisian French and Poutrincourt is speaking Quebecois French. Right. Um, I also think it's, it's interesting um, just like how, how he handles like dialect and like Mm-hmm. obviously obviously not it's not in french like there are occasional footnotes mentioning what french word they use but um but like the first part's in english and and Poutrincourt's english is kind of like awkward and stilted uh-huh. syntax and then when they switch to french um like uh then it becomes steeply's um mm-hmm. speaking that's really really awkward and stilted and i i just think i just think it's a really good example of like sort of the subtlety with which um, Wallace handles like, like um, language. Uh, mm-hmm. He's he was so like like fascinated by like like language and dialect and all this stuff. Um, you'll probably notice in, in some other parts of the book too, like um, some of the like uh, the part with with yours truly, um, mm-hmm. I, which is just written in like just a complete s- stream of conscious single boston, sentence essentially boston accent in there too yeah it's, it's written in a boston accent there's things misspelled like um lens has uh, you know when, when we're seeing stuff through lenses eyes um it's it's written really sort of um like in in, in this sort of like aggressive uneducated tone um mm-hmm. but it's still it's always partially like david foster wallace it still sounds like but but there's these little like malapropisms thrown in like bona fide i think um lens says like boner fried or something 
um, mm -hmm. like when he's he's trying to say bona fide, um, mm -hmm. and and just like uh, to sort of show that like we're we're in in the head of the character, and he does this with right. the the quote with the the speaking too, and uh, yeah, I just think it's mm -hmm. I just think it's really brilliant. It's something I didn't really notice the first time I read it, but mm -hmm. when I reread it and reread it and reread it again, <laughs> it, it, it it popped I, out I to you. Of, yeah, yeah. So it, it makes me think, I had a, a, a listener write in the other day, Mr., I think it's Mr., Martin de Jong, who wrote in from the Netherlands, who was talking about how he was reading a, uh, again, I think he was reading an, Engl an English version of the book, but uh, mm -hmm. was a little uncertain on what certain parts were, and like, pretty much just what's been said before, this must be a nightmare of a book to translate. Oh God! Yes. Any other um, language? Yeah. Um. You could actually. Um. I, I follow her on Twitter. Um. Martina Testa, who is like mm -hmm. the Italian translator for for David Foster Wallace. She's actually okay. done some some interviews and stuff talking about about translating it and stuff. Um. Yeah. It's uh. It's so it's so in idiosyncratic. I just don't think it would work in any language besides. Yeah. English. Um, I, I, I know English and, and Chinese. I, I probably, my Chinese reading is not good enough to read infinite jest in Chinese. Mm. Um, I read like the first Harry Potter, but, um, <laughs> uh, but like, uh, but like, I can't imagine that it would have the sort of same, the same tone because the, 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 the style is so essential to. Yeah. It, it's a big selling point of the book. Right. Where... And even that comes in again with the prog rock thing. Somebody with that mastery of the English language can, you know, really do some tricks with it. But it's exactly. specifically a mastery of the English language and might not translate as well. Yeah, it's very specific to to English. And yeah, if you would have to like like um, I teach uh like I, well I I'm a college counselor for Chinese kids who want to study in the u.s and hmm. um and and they always you know they ask me like what's what's your favorite book you know they're 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 learning english they're mm -hmm. um and and i'm like oh oh infinite gesture and 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 i'm like please please don't try to read that like you'll just <laughs> <laughs> like, like i'm specifically recommending that you do not read this in your second uh -huh. language like it's just going to be a nightmare <laughs> oh god it, it, it might ruin their english forever like yeah yeah <laughs> Oh. Okay. Okay. All right. Let's uh, knock this out here. Um, Putin Court has strange. I already said that part. Putin Court says that teen players have an edge on adults; that they have none of the anxiety or pressure of adult players. This is the same story of literally every incident where an upcoming young player takes down a veteran. Adolescents are the only ones that can truly play without fear. The pressure comes only after winning, realizing that public love is contingent on those wins and will go away the moment the winning stops. As this discussion is happening during the game, Steeply is repeatedly distracted by Trosh practicing broadcasting during the game, talking into his fist nearby on the bleachers. Good old Trosh. Delint goes up to Trosh and tells him to turn down the volume or suffer. Uh, Delint explains individual strengths to Steeply, that Hal has a complete game and so does Stice. Pemulus, for example, has the best volley and lob at Enfield, but it doesn't mean shit against Stice or Hal because Hemulus doesn't have a complete game. He has a unique skill that's only valuable at specific points of the game. Poutrincourt whispers to Sleepily in French, this Delint is wrong. Smiling Rictily, which it's a soft one, but I do this time again. 
That is our word of the week, which we pick out weird ones. Uh, Rictal. Yeah, Rictally. Uh, Rictal is the expanse of an open mouth of a bird's beak, specifically the corner of the mouth where the upper and lower beak meet. So, Rictally. Folks, listeners, try to work it into a sentence this week. Um, and then explain it that you heard it on this podcast. And when people say, what? Smile at them rictally and walk away. <laughs> Poutrincourt, still speaking Quebecois French, uses the word transpercant, which the Parisian French speaking steeply would have no idea what that meant. This, I'm actually not sure how it works out, but according to the footnote, this somehow reveals to steeply that Poutrincourt knows steeply is not a woman nor a soft profiler from some magazine. Yeah, did you pick yeah. up on that exactly? I don't think they really I reveal how i feel like it's you'd have to know french which i do not mm-hmm. <laughs> uh what is that that's page 680 uh i i don't know the specific one but i i, oh, I th- yeah oh doomed yes when mm-hmm. she says doomed um yeah i don't know if that's sort of a tongue-in-cheek reference to like i don't know uh, mm-hmm. I, if, if there are any french speakers who are listening and Mm-hmm. can attest to what it's, I mean. To... You know what it reminds me of? Did you ever watch the show uh, The Wire on HBO? No, I haven't. I've heard a lot about it. But... So, it, just this one particular thing I thought was great. Um, so, there's drug dealers. The show takes place in Baltimore. They know that there's people from New York in town, and they're trying to, like, infiltrate the gang and, like, break in and try to figure out what's going on, uh, pretending to be local. So in Baltimore, there is a genre of music that only ever caught on in Baltimore. It's called go-go music. It's still popular to this day. It's, it's kind of like hip-hop, but with like live instruments and a very specific type of drum. So what they do is they start going up to these people like, oh, yeah, you, are you ready for EU and the bong bongs this weekend? And if somebody says like, what? Like they know like, oh, that's you're one of the spies. So, right yeah, little details like might that might be something like that yeah yeah um because because it's kind of described that like most people don't really see steeply's disguise they just assume mm-hmm. that steeply is a very large woman mm-hmm. and not like a um a yeah. somewhat large man <laughs> yeah um so okay uh Poutrincourt continues to evangelize Stitt's methods that they are building the children to handle and ignore the eventual stress and fear and doom that most adult players grow into by teaching them not to care now. You have to achieve your goal, yet also transcend of that goal swallowing your entire existence. That achieving your goal will not complete you as a person. This is why so many people commit suicide at their pinnacle. They achieve everything and feel no comfort or peace, only fear in it. The saga of Eric Clipperton, as kids know it. Steeply keeps trying to bring up Hal's father's films rather clunkily. Poutrincourt ignores it, but gives enough subtle body language hints that she's aware this is what Steeply truly wants to discuss. At this point, DeLint is only talking to himself about how great and complete John Wayne's game is. Poutrincourt continues discussing the relations between oneself and what one sees, that it's easier for female students, but they see it more in Hal than any other student. And that is the end of my notes. Do you have anything else to add to that little section there? No, no. I think it's just sort of the end. They're just kind of, um, um, I think this happens before this in the book. 
um, well, a bit later in the book, um, you're, uh, it, I, this, it, it, it sort of, it sort of foreshadows Hal's breakdown a little bit, I think, just his sort of over, like, oversensitivity about stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so just uh, keep that in mind, I guess. Okay. Um, when you read further, trying to see if there's any other Easter eggs that you should keep in mind. Be aware of. Again, I, yeah. I knew I particularly skipped over a lot of stuff this week just because there really is a lot of tennis-related detail that I right. just... And, I have... that's, and that's honestly just David Foster Wallace likes talking about tennis. That's really the, all there is to it. There's More... not really a ton of... Mm -hmm. uh, there is sort of this idea that flipping back and forth between the footnotes and the main text is like supposed to uh, symbolize a tennis match. Mm, like the volley um, back and forth. Or, or like relapses into mm -hmm. like addiction. Um, okay. But that's about as, as deep as that metaphor goes, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, cool. All Although right. maybe I'll read it again and find something else. I don't know. I'm still finding <laughs> stuff. Yeah, after all this time, you're still finding new things in there. Yes. Mm, okay. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm gonna have to. I'm. I'm gonna take a while in between, but I am gonna have to come back and uh, give the give us at least a skim, just to you know try to pick up on what I missed out because I must be missing. I must be missing something because there's a lot. It is sort of like, it's sort of, I, I like to think of it as like a scrambled puzzle and like the book doesn't really put the puzzle together. Um, it just gives you like um, all the, it gives you like 75% of the puzzle pieces. You don't know which one are, ones are missing. Um, and you've just got to gotta put the puzzle together and figure out what it's supposed to be <laughs> despite 25% of the pieces being missing. But, but instead of putting it together for you, as you read, he just kind of flings all the pieces out there and it's like, do it yourself, which. Yeah. I, th I think I'm more, uh, I, I'll, I'll be very honest. I'm still, there are parts of the book I like. I'm still not in love with it, but I am very much into pretty much literary analysis so i'm very much looking forward to doing a deep dive once i'm done on like all the different theories yeah. out there so the, the first time really the only thing i was really in love because i felt like the first time i was like the end is just like what is even is this ending um mm. i was like there's so much unresolved stuff uh which i had i it, it sort of makes more sense the second time i read it and you should not have to read a book that many times for it to make sense um so it's not you know uh typical but but i think really what what i fell in love with the first time was just like david foster wallace's like writing style like that's what made mm -hmm. me want to read all his other stuff i just think he has a really unique it's definitely very specific sort of uh dry like um east coast uh intellectual type humor that's like mm -hmm. definitely not for everyone but mm -hmm. Um, but yeah. Gotcha. All right. Well, I think that is our episode this week. Thank you so much, Hannah. This was, this was a lot of fun. We, we got, we yeah. got, into, we got in, into the shit. <laughs> yeah. It was nice, nice coming on. Um, I, I talk about infinite just constantly in my everyday life anyway. So it's kind of like nice to come on and not be told to 
shut up for once. <laughs> well, I like I like to be a safe haven for the beleaguered DFW enthusiasts out in the world to give them give them a, a, right. comf- a comfortable place where they can just expound right. however much they I like. Appreciate it. All right. Um, yeah, if you could give us again what you're working on, where we can find you, uh, just like we did before. Yeah. Um, so I recently had a piece uh, published in Blue River Review called um, Existential Crisis. Um, I had a story published in New Re- Reader um, a few months ago called uh, the, the Worst That Could Happen. That's sort of like a Coover-esque uh, like, like fantasy exploration into people's fears um i'm probably hyping it up way more than it needs to be hyped up but um and, yeah, hype, and I, hype it up I, I, yeah uh, um uh and i i also uh i have some music on spotify um it's just uh under hannah smart um it's very rough and i mixed it myself but um it's like original stuff that i recorded um at college um and yeah hope you nice. enjoyed yeah, listening like, to me rant about my favorite book there you go i think our listeners will definitely get it i all the songs i've recorded for this have been like very rudimentary poorly mic'd like they're they're okay with a little rough around the edges so all right great yeah. great all right well hannah thank you very much i'm gonna end the episode the way i always do i am going to stop recording but you and i can keep chatting for a little bit thank you for being a great guest Yeah, no problem.